Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. On Wednesday, I spoke with Dan McMurtry and Alex Drame of Cairo Partners about their recently published online dating thesis. After that, we went on to discuss Dan's venture capital investments in Bangladesh and how to best use Twitter. Today, we're airing the rest of that conversation. For those who heard our episode on Wednesday, feel free to jump ahead to the 36-minute mark to pick up the rest of our conversation. Alex Drame and Dan McMurtry are co-founders uh, at Tyro Partners, a New York City-based hedge fund focused on secular trends driving technology, healthcare, industrial, and consumer markets. And they focus on deep dive research. They recently published a paper on their online dating market thesis that's gotten a lot of attention in the industry. Alex and Dan, so excited to have you on Industry Focus. Thanks, guys. Really excited to be here. Uh, big fan of the show. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, just, just first off the bat, what got y'all interested in researching this space and you know doing this deep dive on online dating? Well, uh, we're 28 and 29. And so, uh, you know, as we kind of lay out in the paper in that age cohort, there's uh, not a lot of options um, other than online dating. So I think in real life, it's it's just been a constant phenomenon. And we've kind of come of age in, in the period where that's become dominant. So we've seen it gone from, uh, go from a, a niche to a dominant thing. And that's been really interesting to watch. Um, and then as we looked at how it was affecting other parts of the market and other companies and how they were intersecting, we kind of realized, you know, this is actually a really, really important thing, not just a, uh, uh, you know, a one-off. And it's kind of been viewed as a, as a widget and not a primary driver. And we think it is a primary driver, not a widget. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'd say from my own experience, you know, I'm, I'm 27 years old. When Tinder really first hit in college, kind of came out of nowhere. And now it's this phenomenon um, that's really continued over the past decade. Um, you make some observations in the paper about how uh, it's really affected, uh, the rise of online dating has affected gender dynamics between men and women. Can you kind of dive into that uh, observation and how that's driving interactions between people? Sure. So, it, you know, it Everything about online dating is about cohort matching. And so when you make a broad statement about everyone, it tends to be wrong. And one of the reasons why we published the paper was we saw a lot of people in the press writing opinions that, you know, made a lot of sense in a specific cohort, particularly in a New York, San Francisco, uh, you know, top tier school alumni context, but just was not accurate uh, to the broad population. Um, so what, you know, what generally happens is, you know, this is, this, we think about this as creating liquidity and, and transparency in the market. Um, and usually when there is transparency, consumer behavior starts to change. And because it's dating, I think people don't like thinking about this as a rational process because it's very psychologically jarring. Um, but what we're seeing is, is a few big things. Um, one, um, now that everyone has the primary driver is everyone now has access to an, a multiple orders of magnitude larger pool of potential dates. That's the first thing you need to understand. You're going from your dating pool is the people you know at work, people you know at the bar, things like that, church, whatever, depending where you live, to where you have access to literally millions of people and everyone within 50 miles. And that means on both gender dynamics or both genders or, or you know whatever gender you want to be, um, you you have access you have the ability to be a lot more selective because there's the opportunity cost is dropping massively because when you're looking for a first date you can choose amongst unlimited options instead of five people you know or maybe two or three people that you think are interested in in real life and um uh and, and that's really changing a lot of dynamics and then once you're on a date um you you go on your first few dates and you date knowing that in two minutes you can have a potential date or a date 
uh, if not less than that. So um, again, opportunity costs and, and kind of sunk, sunk cost biases and things like that are changing. And so people are not staying in relationships as long because if something isn't really hooking you um, or if there's a problem, you can just bail and, and you've got another option. Um, and so that's causing a lot more turnover. Um, because that is the case, opportunity cost is down, um, selections way up. Um, younger marriages are collapsing. People are not getting married very young because why would you at 18 to 25 when, when you've got everything in front of you and you can go on a date with whoever you want? Um, and that's been a big change over the last 60 years is people going from marrying their, their you know, first sweetheart to, to marrying maybe their 20th relationship or something like that. So that's also leading to a lot of um, basically market participants now have more information when they do decide to get married and form a long-term you know, commitment of some kind. Um, and it's, and it's you know, 5, 10, 20 times as much information as the last generation. And that's actually, we think, why you're seeing divorce rates decline, which is really interesting. Um, and then adding on to that, the other dynamic is that, you're, you know, it's on average for men and women, it's a very different dynamic. Women are getting a minimum of five times the inbounds that men are. And in many cases, 25 or 50 times. And so that creates a, a few things there. One, for, for women generally on the platform, if they're interested in, some, in someone, they have upwards of a 50% probability of matching. And so they can be even more selective because for a man, you have you know, five or 10% probability, if that. And so that incentivizes men to be less selective and swipe more, which ironically reduces the signal for women. Um, and for women, um, they can be a lot choosier because they know they're probably, you know, if they say yes on three different guys, they're probably going to get at least one. Um, and so that creates a, you know, interesting dynamic. And also the queue size gets huge. So if you think about an inbound to one of the profiles, that then queues up as potentially yes, no, or once there's a match, a message. Um, on the female side, they have so many people in queue either on requested likes or on messages that if when the mail sends a message, if he sends it at the wrong time of day, it could be five pages back in their inbox and they're never going to see it. And so there's dynamics like that around time of day friction um, that are, are very, very important and are kind of the largest hackable item on the on the dating sites. Um, and, and the other thing is that the whole thing has become um, visualized and the Instagramification of dating. And um, so now you're seeing, you know, so you're seeing big, big changes in, in consumer spending because everyone needs to look better on camera than they did in the past. And the gating item for you to get in person and be able to maybe show off a sense of humor or whatever is you have to look good in a photo. Um, and so all in set, like the first gating item is going to be photo quality, particularly on Tinder. Um, and so that's changing a lot of different um, consumer behaviors. The other thing is because the opportunity cost is so low, the stakes for early dates, if you want to be successful, are much higher. You have to have really good date ideas. You have to, you know, when I talk to guys who are trying to date, they're like, well, what do I do? Where do I take a girl? You have to really make sure that if you go on a date with somebody, they have a lot of fun. You can't just be, oh, another cocktail at a, at a nondescript bar that nobody cares about. It's just not going to work because you're offering a purely commoditized product at that point. And so it's changing a lot of different consumer behaviors. It's changing household formation. Um, and, um, and it's changing just general socialization because the other thing we saw, we talked about in the paper is 
people are no longer making referrals, which used to be kind of the dominant way in which people would meet people is, you know, your family or friends would introduce you to somebody and set you up. And because there's an unlimited number of other options, it doesn't make sense to do that anymore because if the referral fails, then it could blow up the friend group and create, you know, really awkward situations. And I think, you know, anybody who's been to an office Christmas party has probably seen that go down. Um, and so there's, you know, and, and we can go on in that, but it gets very complicated, but it's changing pretty much everything, right? If we go through that, I mean, there's not much that is not touching. And that was why we, when we dug in, we were like, wow, this is a much bigger deal than just like, oh, it's just another app. Sure, exactly. It's fundamentals of human behavior, how relationships start and end. To, to your point, uh, when, you, when you speak about referrals, I mean, I saw that early on um, on, on Tinder. They used to show you who, who are your common friends, and you're, you're disinclined uh, to swipe on those people because of the, the social dynamics um, that could happen. You know, anecdotally, I was talking to my fiance ahead of this uh, ahead of this interview, and those same observations you made about folks being more nitpicky uh, around who they date uh, because of that that new supply um, of, of folks that they can they can just get after much more quickly makes folks much more 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 quick to. You know, ditch a date that uh, maybe does one thing wrong or or checks off that box that uh, the no go list, I guess, or the uh, the, the deal breakers. Um, yeah, you're 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 accumulating a database of things that you know don't work for you. It's actually good because a lot of people I know, and and I would say maybe even you know my parents and other people I know, like they got married and they were never they really really liked each other and there was you know some chemistry, but they were never compatible as people. And they didn't date long enough and they didn't, they didn't do the reps and the, and the checks to really vet that out. Um, and so they, one of the other things we're seeing that's really interesting is cohabitation, couples moving in together, is up. And I think large that, a big part of that is because uh, people are not, you know, due to wealth and, and, and income, are not buying houses as early. Um, and so people are renting longer, which means you can sign a six-month, 12-month, 18-month lease to somebody and kind of try it out. Can we actually get along in person? Um, but the conversion rate from cohabitation to marriage is dropping very quickly. And that means more people are actually doing that check of like, we may love each other, but can we actually live together? Are we going to kill each other? And I think that's really important, um, in terms of, you know, I think that's a big driver of why divorce rate is dropping is the percentage of people who are getting married now who have actually attempted to have lives together prior to getting married is much, much higher. And, you know, somebody from a Catholic family, there are people that disagree with that. But I think uh, in terms of uh, the probability that you will be happy, uh, it's probably ideal. And, um, you know, as an Irish Catholic, I'm a big believer in confession. So I think that's a better way to go. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, so it's changing, it's changing housing, it's changing demand for rental properties. In addition to all the consumer stuff, it's changing, you know, again, all over the board. Sure. One of the interesting charts in, in your paper really shows how online dating as a share of how new couples meet has, has rocketed up. It's almost straightened to the right. If you go back to the, to the start of the internet, maybe a, a little little blip before the, the smartphone came on board. But an interesting observation from that data, as, as you've mentioned, downtrends in, in referred couples, but also you see this suspicious upswing in folks reporting meeting through coworkers. You call out in the paper, these are probably folks lying about how they meet, that they're actually meeting online. Does that suggest to you, uh, it suggests to me, um, that there's still some level of shame or disapproval around online dating? Do you still, do you still think that's present in the market today? Um, you know, it's funny in the paper, uh, I think it was Stanford's family study center that put that, put those charts out and we really love their stuff. 
Um, they actually went back to some of the people that talked, said I met in bars and they're like, all right, look, dude, did you really meet in a bar? And they're like, no, we met on, well, we met on, we were connected on Tinder, but the first time we met was in a bar, they're playing some technicality. But I think that, I don't think there's a stigma anymore in 80 or 90% of the population under, let's say 40, but there still is a stigma in going to grandma and saying we met on the telephone or something that sounds weird to older generations. So I think there's still a stigma in going to your parents and grandparents and especially, you know, I'm, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Alex is from Ohio. We now live in New York. Very different cultures uh, between those two places. And it's going to be a little different. You know, I'm not necessarily going to go back to uh, my grandparents in Virginia and say, hey, I met this person on a website because they're going to go, what the hell are you talking about? But in New York, I, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd be very candid about that. Um, I think ironically, both Alex and I met the people we're dating through referrals which is the you know, lowest probability way of doing it now. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's uh, uh, so we don't have to tell that lie. But, uh, you know, in other circumstances, I've, I've definitely personally told that lie of, yeah, we met at the bar. And, you know, my dad's looking at me like, bullshit, you met at the bar. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, a follow-up question I have there, as you see these differences in attitudes uh, among generations, even even for us, being in our, in our late 20s, kind of remember dating uh, before Tinder and, and these apps kind of existed. Are, are you seeing uh, among the, the Gen Z folks, the folks who haven't known a world where online dating didn't, didn't exist, that attitudes uh, are even diff- even more different among that group than, say, among you know our generation, the millennials? Yeah, definitely. What's interesting is now you're actually seeing... Um an increasing number of people who are 50 plus meeting online um, because as you get to a certain age, the available dating pool is much more limited because a lot of people are married or, or what have you. And, you know, I don't, it sounds like a, you know, I've never been 60 and single. Hopefully I never will be, but um, if you're 60 and single right now, how do you meet somebody? And that's been people. So now there's, you know, several specific dating platforms for people who are, you know, 50 plus. Um, there are matchmaking businesses, um, and, and so you're seeing actually attitudes change because, you know, the general opinion of maybe the 50 to 70 year old cohort may be a certain thing, but the attitude of the 50 to 70 year old cohort that's single is probably going to be different, you know? Sure. Sure. As we're talking about cohorts, you mentioned earlier the Instagramification of online dating, a lot of focus around, uh, people's appearance. Uh, when you look at Instagram itself and social media platforms, you see a, a big habit of folks having platforms across multiple social media sites, people as they age migrating from Facebook to Instagram, other platforms. As you look at usage patterns in the online dating space, how are you seeing cohorts migrate among the platforms, having profiles on multiple platforms? How, how is that playing out? Something interesting has happened in the last uh, year or two, I think, which is you started to see you know, for a while, it seemed like all the platforms were the same. They were all swipe left, right, um, basically off of how well Tinder was doing with with mobile phone proliferation. But now you're seeing slightly different value propositions emerge. And so what we think is happening is basically Match and Bumble and the other platforms are trying to basically say, we're going to have a number of different UI functions that are the, the individual apps are just different UI configurations. And based on um, biases of the consumer coming into the market, they may have a preference for form factor A versus form factor B. And um, so Bumble has now, Bumble and um, Hinge have now decided that they're going to try to be a little bit upscale, um, a little bit more, 
um, I'm not sure what the word is, but they're trying to be a little higher quality of a brand. Um, slow things down a bit. Both of them have functions after the match that delays the ability to to speak. So in Bumble, the woman has to has to message first, and also the man can and they have 24 hour window to do that. But the man can pay to extend, and so very clever monetization strategy they've done is the women are aware that the man can extend the match. And so a lot of women will only talk to guys who extend the match because it's a double indication of interest that they're, you know, they're really serious. And that's unique on Bumble because on most of the platforms, the paying users are the worst performing users. Historically, that's been the case. And so on Bumble, they figured out a way to make the, specifically the male cohort, cohort paying a, a table stakes item. Um, Tinder has tried to use Tinder Gold and other things like that to um, incentivize people to pay and make it less about the pitch that it's going to increase your odds. They're offering more selection. They're like reducing access to the pool um, because generally the pitches of, oh, if you do this, you get unlimited swipes just means that your hit rate is very low. And you think that if you can get 50 X the access to the pool, that if your hit rate is 2%, then you might be able to get one match on 50 swipes. Um, and uh, and then Hinge is structured very differently, where it has kind of cards on pictures and question, funny questions and prompts. And the person, um, when they like the person, have to, or it's strongly suggested that you engage and comment on a specific item. And so they've gamified it a little bit and they've slowed it down. Um, slowing down the app process is smart because people don't turn the inventory as fast. Um, and so you're starting to see, you know, a bunch of different. Uh, um, offerings there. And then, you know, the original firm that tried to slow it down was eHarmony and eHarmony basically would filter applicants. You had to apply and they would filter applicants for how desperate you were. And then they would only show you like three or four, four people a month so that you'd take those very seriously. They know you're already predisposed to, you know, making a purchase in, in economics terms. And, um, um, and then they give you a lot of information. You're trying to go back and forth. And so, you know, the gamification and slowing it down is one angle. The really fast dopamine hit, you know, Tinder is largely used as a form of entertainment, not as a uh, actual dating vehicle. Um, people are spending, you know, 45 minutes a day on it and, and more in, in, in certain cases, um, just because it's fun. It's, you know, and, and, and one of the things, you know, when we think about different businesses, one of the things we like about the dating business is, I think what we would call the dating business is a neurological inevitability. It's not something people like. It's something people are, you know, biologically hardwired to need. And that is, you know, there's very few businesses that are that are that way. And I think cigarettes are another one. And but that's about it. You know, cigarettes, Coca-Cola, these are these are addiction like neurological processes. Um, and what we found with Tinder is what we found with all these platforms very interesting is if you go back kind of on an evolutionary basis over the arc of human history, if you're a male and a female is interested, the probability that you can convert that into a relationship or something is pretty high, um, just over the cumulative history of humanity and monkeys. Um, and so the logical dopamine feedback loop there is that when you get that indication of interest, you get a very positive feedback loop neurological response. And that is what Tinder's gaming, because just the indication of interest is a massively positive feeling. Um, but actually going on the date and getting to know somebody and all of that, that's very stressful. And so people are basically optimizing for that dopamine hit, not for going on dates. And that is Tinder's core business, 
The other businesses are trying to say, when you get tired of that, you can come to this. And there's more of a actual, this is an actual dating thing. Um, but Tinder, Tinder is taking advantage of an instinctual um, kind of feedback loop. And then the other platforms now are increasingly trying to say, okay, if you like really want to meet somebody. So there's a lot of ads all over New York City subways right now for Hinge. And the, and the line on the ad is uh, designed to be deleted. And that's kind of the picture saying. So what the idea for Match is they're going to have all these platforms. And when you rage quit one and go, you know, I hate this, you're just going to sign up for another Match property. Um, and it's a brilliant strategy. Yeah, Deanna, you know, as we're talking about Match and talking about the, the strategies these companies use to, to give you that dopamine hit and keep you on the platform, let, let's kind of talk about Match, talk about monetization. As you look at, um, you know, Tinder's, it encourages you to keep swiping, spend a lot of time on the app. Those other ones are, are much slower paced. How does that affect kind of the monetization uh, runway of these apps? Uh, yeah, any thoughts there? Alex, you want to take that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we think there's there's huge runway for monetization for, for you know, Match in particular. Uh, and right now they're monetizing, I think, at like a 60 cent per day ARPU right now. Uh, that's been growing you know, pretty steadily for the last couple of years. But with, um, you know, Tinder Gold and Tinder Plus and, and all the different sort of like add-on purchases that you can do like inside the apps, you know, there's, there's, there's room to expand that feature. So we think that's going to continue to grow. But we also see things that kind of um, you know, extend the reach of these apps, you know, kind of just beyond your smartphone. So, uh, for example, last, uh, I think it was last October, um, Hinge announced a partnership with OpenTable where like through the, the Hinge app, when you, you know, have a date, you can go into you know the, the open table section of the app and find a place to to go. You know, so we think there's there's opportunities for sort of extensions like that where you can you know partner with you know restaurants, bars, whatever uh, to actually get people to like pick you know pick that specific spot for the day. There's you know, and, I, and I think at a high level, um, what's interesting about when you think about what is the monetization capacity of these businesses. There's advertising and partnerships, and then there's premium subscriptions. Those are the kind of the visible uh, vectors. But I think I think the way to think about it is the the tangential markets to dating and the products and services being sold are generally absurdly high margin products. We're talking about cosmetics. We're talking about liquor. Um, we're talking about tickets, things like that, and so. They now have a marketplace which controls kind of the prime consumer in the 18 to 35 year old category that structurally has to spend money on that stuff to survive in the evolutionary process. And they control it. And so the question is over time, can they monetize by taking cuts in those adjacent verticals? Because people are already buying or going to be buying those products so that they can compete on the apps before they would buy those products so that they could compete at the bar at the club at the event they'd look good feel good they'd have ways to you know attract a, a, um, a date but now it's all one place and so they have they have a real and i think the, the, the bull case for match is kind of a lot a much better version in my opinion of the bull case for grubhub where they actually control all of the demand um, and so the question is, why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with cosmetics advertisements? Why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with ticket sales? Why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with restaurants, actually? And restaurants are a terrible business. But the point about restaurants is 
a customer who comes in and buys three to six drinks is an infinity margin compared to a customer that buys a meal. You're selling them, you know, vodka sodas and beers that are, are massively high margin products. And so a restaurant can actually afford to pay a deceptively high amount if if it can be validated with data that the customers being placed there are there to drink. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a question of, you know, can these apps actually drive drive volume? Right. And if that's the case, then, then we believe there's there's significant monetization potential. And the beautiful thing about Match is they have so many platforms, and and this is really any tech tech business. But what's really cool about Match is they can do really interesting testing of any of these ideas of how we might do is they don't have to change the whole platform. They can go in and they can tweak and they can pilot something just in New York. They can pilot it in just in New York under 35. They can. They can do cohort testing and very controlled testing where they're not risking the platform anyway. They're not going to change the overall platform uh, in a way that can impair it. But they can go in and test these things, get the verification data they need, and then go out to the monetization channel and say, look, we proved this works. Um, and, and they can make the best pitch ever. I'm going to make you $5 and take $1. And that's, that's, you know, that is such a better pitch than you know, most uh, ad sales. That's what every asshole is trying to be, but this has actually got a very good case for it. Right, they can, um, so they, that's sort of the vector of where we see the monetization. Sure, I guess they, they can they can truly link that demand, that aggregate that demand, and really link it to uh, to where these people end up going on dates and, and and you know capture some some share of that value. Obviously, Tinder, when you look at Match Group, is dominating the story. It's been driving a lot of the growth in revenue. Uh, when you look outside of Tinder at those those sub platforms they have, OkCupid is one. Um, which one of those are you most excited about the prospects for? Definitely Hinge. Um, I think that, you know, you've got a few things. Tinder does well because it's a very gamified thing. It's very low psychological commitment. You go on, it's, it's kind of a meme, it's funny. And so in new markets, particularly when they went into Europe and Asia and other places, it's very easy to get people to go on because it's kind of this fun, funny thing. And um, people are going on, a lot of people go on to, these, go on to Tinder specifically in a very unserious way. Um, but once online dating as a cultural phenomenon gets normalized in a market, then you start to see stratification of interests in terms of people actually wanting to date, people wanting to swipe, people wanting this, that, or whatever. And so Bumble, I think, is an interesting position where they're kind of straddling a few cohorts there. And that's, I think, very clever. And they've done it. They've really outperformed what I thought they would do because I felt initially that they had put frictions in their UI that made it really unpleasant to use and and um, um and i think for a lot of people it's their least favorite app i think for a lot of women it's their favorite and that's kind of an interesting thing but they've just crushed it um but hinge is the one within the match universe that i'm the most excited about because i think they've got i think that if you rebuild online dating today um in a, in a world that where it is normalized i think you'd build hinge and Hinge is where they're doing the most product testing. Hinge is where they're doing the open table testing. Hinge is, I think, kind of like the, the souped up, complicated, you know, custom hot rod they've got. Tinder is a very simple product. Um, Hinge has, you know, a lot more inputs, a lot more data. They can see what type of things people care about. They can see how people try to approach other people. They can see, you know, hit rates across different entry, different entry vectors. Um, and so that's just the most fascinating one to me by, by a lot. Sure. You call it in your paper, kind of take a shot at, a, at Facebook's dating profile. Uh, when you, when you look at the, you know, the, the fall and referral of friends among, 
you know, the share and how people meet. Uh, when you look at Facebook's dating uh, offering, do you view that as, as not a significant threat to match? And if so, why? Yeah, and, and I would note they called me and, and kind of wanted to check me on that, which uh, <laughs> I appreciated. We talked through it. And their case is kind of like they don't need to make any money on dating because if, if this adds a network effect to Facebook, it's they can monetize across the whole platform. And so they don't need to do some of the gamification that leads to user dissatisfaction because they don't need to ever make money on it. Um, and that's an interesting case. And I think, you know, but I think for younger people, they don't, I think people do not trust Facebook, um, younger people. And I don't think younger people want their dating to be done through Facebook. But I do think people who are call it 35 plus, and particularly people who are 40 plus, are extremely willing to date through Facebook. And so I think they probably have the best positioning right now in how you capture that older segment. So when I talk to people who've used Facebook dating, I think the average age has been like 45 or 50. Um, and so I think they, you know, Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge are dominating 35 and under. And I think Facebook has a really interesting niche in, you know, 40 plus. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a decently sized market. It's not nearly as big as, you know, kind of the youth market. But, um, you know, they could have, you know, a little something there. And, and um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to necessarily fail. Um, but I don't think it's going to compete in a serious way with the other platforms. Yeah. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the growth metrics under the hood at Match, like the, the launch of Facebook dating really didn't have any impact on those growth trends. Yeah. Uh, and there's just such a strong network effect and social normalization, and, um, you know, and, and they've and they've made it Facebook dating instead of Instagram dating, which is interesting. I do think if they if they went through the Instagram vector and they made an Instagram specific dating product, that would be something we we'd have to think about a lot more because that's really got an iron grip on the younger population. But I don't think Instagram thrives because of simplicity. I don't think they want to mess with, you know, their their. Uh, um, uh, you know, the cash cow there. Uh, you know, I think tinkering with Instagram is a mistake and I think they know that, but if they did decide to launch Instagram dating, that would be a lot more threatening, I think. Okay. And then, you know, but outside of Facebook and match, is there any independently or not companies that aren't public today that, that you followed and are really excited about, you know, paying attention to going forward in this space? Um, you know, there are some matchmaking businesses that I think for like, uh, you know, they're never going to have that type of scale. But um, I think they're great businesses. I think particularly in the older cohort, um, the 50 plus cohort is willing to, there's a market for 50 plus people with of, of kind of some wealth that are willing to pay 10, 20, 30, $40,000 for, you know, a matchmaking service that is able to find them a partner because they're lonely and, you know, they already spend a lot of money, on a lot of stuff, but they can't find a good life partner and they want that. And so they're willing to pay way more than I thought they would. And it makes sense incentivize when you look at it. But so I think those are great. Um, you know, Brent B. Short Adventure Capital owns one that I think is interesting. And there's some other smaller ones. But those businesses rely on local networks and are kind of day-to-day -day human touch businesses. Um, there's also some interesting ones. There's one based around Cornell. Uh, I'm forgetting the name. That really pioneered the whole, you know, we're going to place dates at 
um, at restaurants and bars and things. So basically what they would do is they would get a, they would have a deal um, for drinks or food or whatever that the only way you could cash in on is if you went on a date through the app. And I have been kind of curious, and I think it's going to take some time before this works, but I have been generally curious why these apps, you know, why does the relationship with the app end at the point in time where, um, you know, you meet somebody? Why are they not serving up recommendations for dates and activities and things like that? Because again, as I said, you really have to compete on the quality of your dates. And so I think that's an arms race. And, uh, and I think that's something that can be monetized on, but it hasn't been done yet. That's really interesting. Um, I think, you know, you have things like Minder, which is Muslim Tinder, and they really didn't think that hard of the name, um, but that's interesting. Um, and then you've got, you know, increasingly niche. Um, I think as an investor on the private side, you can probably make a lot of money if you're able to target um, like a very specific niche. And so there's niches that are kind of taboo that people don't, don't want to talk about in public that are actually massive businesses. Um, and so I think there's some of those that kind of remind me of like MindGeek, which is the company that rolled up all the pornography websites and has done, uh, you know, they've made an enormous amount of money. Um, and so there's some things if you want to get in a little bit weirder cohorts that, that would do well. There is also, you know, uh, ethnically centered apps, you know, JSwipe, Minder, et cetera, that, that'll do well. Um, and then, um, and then you have the Chinese players. You've got Tantan, which is under, um, Momo, uh, which is on the NASDAQ. Um, and that still remains fairly small. Um, and it's not yet a driver and they've got a transaction happening right now. And I think that's worth watching. Um, I'm not sure yet that it's investable, but it's definitely something that we find interesting. Um, and they're kind of the, you know, the Chinese mega, but the issue they have is in other Asian countries, um, outside of China, you know, we spent some time in Asia this year. Um, they have the lowest social prestige and number one social prestige in other countries in Asia is Bumble. A distant second is Tinder and a even more distant third is Tantan. And so Tantan is considered like kind of a trashy, sketchy app in many countries. Um, and there's still, a, you know, there's some association with prostitution and things like that. And that's going to hurt them. And they, so they've got to figure out, and they may have to launch a hinge type product to try to upscale, um, the offering. Yeah, Dan, this brings up a question that, you know, I, I, I've I had and we haven't really addressed yet. You mentioned Minder, uh, the, the the Chinese players, is that, you know, you saw with with social media, uh, particularly in China, there was a, you know, a separate uh, social media platform that really dominated those countries versus versus the platforms that dominated uh, in the U.S. and Europe. As you look uh, to, um, to these online dating apps, uh, do you see there being, a, you know, a, a few global dominant platforms or do you see these regional uh players emerging um one of the big one of the big if not the biggest advantage the united states has um and a fellow fund manager nopal sanala who's on twitter talks about this all the time is american culture is globally extremely powerful um i was in bangladesh this year and people are watching netflix they're watching youtube they're on facebook um our tv shows are globally dominant. Our films are globally dominant. And that has a bleed effect, I think, in here where, um, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of, you also see it with luxury products. Like Hermes is Hermes everywhere. It's not just Hermes in, you know, France or somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and that, I think, is really what's happening here where a local brand will almost always have a lower prestige rank and safety rank and just general perception 
than these major platforms. And it's an immensely powerful thing in emerging markets where people are still getting comfortable with these platforms um, because they trust the Western brand platforms where there's already you know millions and millions of users. Um, I think it's going to be very hard, barring government intervention and antitrust things like that, for anyone to hit massive scale outside of Match and Bumble. You mentioned visiting Bangladesh uh, this year, and I want to kind of transition uh, to talking about kind of the work uh, that you're doing there. I think in 2019, you started a venture fund targeted uh, at that country. What draw your drew your attention to Bangladesh, and uh, what's attractive about that country? Sure. So uh, the punchline, you know, top line view is it is the it is the fastest growing investable country in the world. There's like Guyana, Rwanda, I think Ethiopia ahead of it on nominal GDP growth. But beyond that it is the fastest. And I don't know how to put money into those. Um, and I also don't trust their currencies and things like that. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot more hair on those. Um, Bangladesh beyond that it is the fastest growing investable economy in the world. Um, so that's one thing. It's it's it, you know on that reason I think you know people should be looking at it, um, you know and and there are problems in the market, but the rate of improvement is astonishing. And so you know five or six years ago you did not have consistent power and internet and plumbing. Now all of those things work. So there are a plethora of businesses which operate now which only could operate three years ago. So their economic gains are not just some function of you know, the Fed rigging the market or this, that, or whatever, their economic gains are efficiency gains and they're very durable. They have balanced income between men and women. They have a controlled birth rate. The macro pitch picture is tremendous. They have a slight issue with NPLs, which is kind of going to be a one-time one-off. Once that, once that gets handled and it, and it will get handled, I don't think it's like a doomsday thing. That is the only black mark on this macro story. Beyond that, it's the best fundamental macro story I have ever seen. And I think it's a once in a lifetime macro setup. And the fact that more people aren't talking about it blows my mind. And I think, you know, one of the issues there is that um, most people don't know a lot of Bangladeshi people. And one of my best friends and, you know, frequent collaborators, Rahat Ahmed, is Bangladeshi. And so I had, you know, just by chance, uh, very good insight in there. And he was involved in the first real Bangladeshi tech startup, Patel, which was Bangladeshi Uber. He helped seed it. I, like a fool, passed on uh, seeding it because I didn't like Uber's unit economics. So why would I invest in Bangladeshi Uber? It turns out when labor is borderline free and density is 50 or 100x the US, the unit economics are actually a lot better. But uh, that did like 150x in two years or something. And I still hate myself for it. But because that worked, uh, all these, you know, this is a country that has a median age of 27. Um, and the majority of the population is under, you know, 30, 35. Um, and so all of a sudden you have all these people that, as I said, are online, have the same references. They're very aware of what's going on globally. They see what the, the specific problems that the country has. And that is leading to a firestorm of entrepreneurial behavior trying to fix all these problems. So every inefficiency that you might see, there's 25 companies trying to crack it. And they have the resources, they're building on Amazon, they're building on Microsoft, you know, AWS and Azure. Um, and they're gonna solve these problems. Um, you know, you, need, you can't go in and bet they're gonna solve them on a one month, six month, 12 month time frame, but on a 10 year time frame, this stuff's getting handled. Um, and, and, and then shockingly, you know, there was nobody on the ground really, you know, there was no Bangladesh specialist fund and Rahat expressed an interest in doing that. And we had built a fund before. So we said, 
yeah, we'll partner with you and, and help do the fun side stuff and, and analyzing the businesses. And I've gone over there and, and met with all the businesses and it's really, really cool. And Rahat's going to be there locally running a whole team supporting the companies. Um, at a high level, it's, it, is a, it is a piece of a thesis we have, which is generally that the proliferation of smartphones throughout emerging markets is allowing a level of transparency and communication that is causing these inefficiencies and structural problems to get taken down really, really fast. And it's this clever dynamic where on any you know one month or one year basis, it may not seem like that much happens, but on any cumulative two, five, two to five year basis, it's mind blowing how different things are. And that's going back to that point about they didn't have stable internet six years ago. They didn't have stable power. The power in the main city, DACA, would shut off. Now that's not happening. Um, and we actually have you know friends that run businesses that have teams in Bangladesh and India, and their internet and power are far more reliable in Bangladesh than in India. And um, so that's, you know, that's an interesting setup. And then we're also seeing, you know, that we're looking at talent and opportunity versus capital, right? Um, we are seeing people leave very high paying jobs in Western markets, in global markets to go back into Bangladesh and build these companies because the talent sees the bottom up opportunity. Capital hasn't figured it out yet. That is the high level pitch. We are going in where the fundamentals have gone one, one way. The people who are closest to it are max pumped and you're seeing this explosion. And we're talking about going from maybe six tech startups to approaching 200 in three years. Um, and there's still no specialist fund. And so we're trying to be the specialist fund that can tell these stories and, and for other capital providers who want to come to the market that we can partner with them and allow them to leverage our on the ground team because most people don't have any idea how to diligence this market. They don't know the service providers, they don't know the market, they don't know the government, they don't know the regulations, all of that stuff. So we've handled a lot of the operational back end um, so that we can be a good partner on the ground for other people. So um, you know that's kind of the overall thesis and, and plan there. Um, and so we're building that right now. We uh, should be should be um, announcing some of the first deals in uh, in the very near future. Yeah, it's very exciting when when you look at you know, the Bangladeshi market. Obviously, from a macro point of view, uh, made a very compelling case. Uh, what do you think is the biggest challenges uh, to these startups getting off the ground and getting scale uh, in this country? Um, I think there's such an explosion right now that you know when you and this is this isn't unique to Bangladesh, but just hiring is very important. And who are the talent? You know, if you have all the pieces, you can build something really, really incredible in this country. Um, and really any other country, but you have to be the, the biggest thing we have to focus on is, is, is founders and not just founders, but the team. Do they have the team? Do they have the ability to recruit more people? Can they retain people? Um, and then once they start to scale, can they, are they building a competitive moat? Are they building something that's sort of a commodity product? And the second it starts working, there's going to be 50 copycats. And those are the two things that we're really, really focused on above all else. Um, and that's not that unique to the Bangladeshi market. We know a lot about what the specific risks are around, you know, we are not going to try to disrupt, you know, a very wealthy family in Bangladesh's business and start a beef with an empire. That's just a stupid thing. And that's kind of, you know, that doesn't require a lot of insight. It's just logically like, don't start wars. Um, we're not going to do that. Um, but what, what we're trying to do is kind of going back to that same thing. We're trying to invest in businesses that are going to be able to go to their customers and say, we're going to save you 5 or $10, and we're going to charge you $1. And we're, where we have really good incentives, and especially on marketplace businesses, where you have really good two-sided incentives, where both supply and demand 
are getting amazing bargains. And one, where they're maybe getting better price, but two, where it's actually increasing transaction volume. And those are the things we really, really like because it's a network effect, um, a very defensible moat. Uh, and that's really exciting. The other thing about, about this market that we really like that no one gets yet is that a lot of these companies are not Bangladesh only plays. These are in many cases, if not regional, global opportunities. And some of them are already in three, four, five countries and they're still being priced as if they're three kids in DACA with a laptop. When in reality, they have a hundred thousand customers and a 25 person engineering team. Um, and so people just, you know, and it's also kind of inspiring and scary to see this on the ground because I think a lot of people right now, entrepreneurialism is really sexy in the United States. And I think a lot of people are kidding themselves about who they're competing against, where you're going to compete against people that are literally hungry and they have massive teams and they work 24 seven and, you know, they don't, you know, there's no hustle porn because they don't know what that is. They're just building and they're, you know, by a time a company's at a million dollar valuation in Bangladesh, typically they already have 50 or 100,000 customers. And the customer number is not important. What's important is that that means they've iterated their product like 25 times. They have such good product market fit. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Part of it's just because the dollar volumes are smaller, but also the density of the country. You're talking 40 million people in one city in Dhaka. So the density is insane. And so these are really, really interesting, innovative, aggressive companies that are growing it in many cases, 50% month on month. Um, and, and the valuations and the lack of capital mean that, you know, we, we think every company we're investing in is going to be a big success, but the reality of VC is that not all of them will be, but the skew is so insane from a capital allocation standpoint that, you know, as somebody with a, a healthy desire to take risk, I mean, you'd have to bolt me to the table and not put money into this personally. Um, so, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I love me a cheap call option, and I think the fundamentals are absolutely exceptional. Um, and, you know, that's why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And, and I think it's, you know, I'm really pumped about it. Sure. I think it so- sounds like definitely a, a, uh, an exciting market to watch going forward with lots of potential, uh, you know, baked into that, that population. And as you mentioned, that hunger uh, to succeed. Um, last thing I want to talk to you about uh, before we let you go is, is Twitter. That's how I kind of came into contact with your uh, with your account. Uh, how do you use Twitter on, on the day to day? Twitter is a superpower. Um, I think Zach Cantor and, and Patrick O'Shaughnessy both said this to me in some effect, but I think uh, I think very few people know how to use Twitter well. Um, I think we figured it out. Um, but I think once you have a significantly high follower base and you have and you manage your reputation with the community well, it's the closest thing to having a generalized artificial intelligence possible because you can just post a question and you're going to get dozens of uh, reasonably intelligent attempts at answering or assisting in like hours. And so what's been incredible about it at this point is, you know, our use cases changed. In the beginning, it was, you know, messing around with my friends, posting stand-up jokes. Um, and I didn't really get it at first, where I was like, I just don't see a lot of valuable conversation. I, I'm not very interested in the stock twits, day trader crowds, thoughts on anything. Uh, no offense to them, it's just not what I do, and I don't get it. Um, but you know, as we kind of built it up, now at this point, we either can directly reach out or one degree of separation, bank shot, get to pretty much anyone we want. Um, where, and, and I think 
that's become immensely valuable in terms of accessing information and also people. Um, and I think one of the things we've done that's been very valuable is, you know, we've met a ton of people offline where either we met offline, we find out we're both on Twitter or we, I will go get coffee or drinks with people off Twitter or I'll go to happy hours when they're hosted and things like that. And a lot of people, you know, for, I think, legacy social reasons, similar to the perception on online dating are not comfortable with, with doing that or with telling somebody, Oh, I met this person off Twitter. And I think you just need to get over that. All right. It's 2020. Like it's not weird. You know, if you meet somebody and they're weird, fine, leave, whatever, you know, and there definitely are some weirdos that I've met, but um, you know, at this point we've met hundreds of people and you go in and, and, you know, I think over time, if you build a reputation of, you know, you're doing favors for people, you're helping them out on whatever they're doing, you can build a lot of goodwill at scale in a way I don't think is possible through really any other uh, venue. Um, and so at a certain point, you get to a point where you, you know, you have, you know, over a number of years, it's taken years to do this, but over a number of years you have, you know, a couple thousand people you've done a small favor for in, in one way or another. Um, and it's not that they owe you, but you know, you can just generally be able to reach out to people and people are going to be responsive. Um, and I think you got to be very careful how you use it. You know, some people go on and they, they, you know, I really abhor this approach that some people have of like, I'm just here for work. You're messing around. Uh, and because it, it comes off to other people as you're trying to use them. You're, you're, you're basically saying, I have a claim to your labor. And if you aren't sending me free ideas and free work, you're a waste of time. And, you know, to somebody that does this professionally and, you know, full time and we do an enormous amount of research, um, I am not positively inclined towards somebody that expresses that they feel they're entitled to my work for free. Um, and I'm happy to share work if somebody actually wants to have a, you know, a discourse. Um, but some people, I think, take it way too seriously. I think some people take it not seriously enough, but I think you need to be flexible. I think you need to build a brand. I think you just need to be nice. Like, you know, you can, you know, talk a little trash and, and have fun and stuff like that. But n none of these Twitter beefs should ever actually be serious or translate to real life issues. You know, I don't have, there's not a single person on the website that I, you know, actually have any issue with. Um, and I, you know, I see people who go on Twitter and they want to signal to a certain cohort, maybe short, it shorts always a lot. They want to signal like, oh, I'm one of the smart people who covers these names. And so thus, I will start having a major fight with XYZ people. And I think that's just such a mistake because, yeah, maybe there's a hundred or a thousand accounts that are like, cool, you're like one of us in the tribe. But to the other X million people, you look like a raving lunatic. And then when maybe you want to work on something that's not just Tesla, nobody will talk to you. And so I think a lot of people like just don't think long term. They don't think about their reputation. Um, they're not helpful, they're mean, they're doing a lot of things that you just never do in real life, or maybe they do do in real life, and that's why they're needing to go on Twitter to meet people, but um, that sounds mean, but I mean, I just think being a nice person on Twitter over time, if you're, if you're nice and have, and, and have smart things to say, it's just an incredibly powerful tool, and it's not a whole lot more complicated than that. You learn little tricks as you get bigger and, and, and meet more people, but it's really just like being a good person, being nice, being helpful, you know, good Samaritan stuff. And, and that and that does scale. Sure. Uh, one, one last question for you, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Uh, you know, right along the lines of Twitter, uh, you recently decided to de-anonymize your account. When you look at a lot of these folks you, you mentioned that can maybe make the experience on there not quite as much, tend to be anonymous uh, sometimes. Uh, why did you decide to change uh, change your account, go with your real name these past few months? 
Yeah, on the on the anonymity topic, the best and the worst people on Twitter are anonymous. And I, as a former anonymous person, you know, I built most of my following anonymous. I know who a lot of the anonymous accounts are, if not most or all. Um, at least the big follower ones. Sure. And most people have good reasons for, you know, wanting to be anonymous. You know, one of them is if you're a younger guy and, and you want to have these debates, like a lot of the times the first thing people come back with you at is like, you know, who the hell are you? And I love the ability of Twitter to actually have to have debates around facts and ideas. And that's fun. Um, and it's a very, unique, especially in finance where there's so much ego and so much I'm so-and-so who runs so-and-so firm. And they just will try to use an ad hominem attack to disqualify the argument. So I love that ability of anonymity. If you're using anonymity just to like viciously attack somebody. And, and, and I also think there's a line, there's a line between talking trash and just making jokes and actually trying to attack somebody in a way that could impact them off the platform. And in my opinion, in the opinion of most of the other like high follower account follower account accounts, if you're crossing that line, you are just radioactive. We're never going to talk to you because it's a matter of time till you turn on somebody else or you turn on somebody you shouldn't and it, it just gets nasty. Um, going back to you know having met a lot of people, at a certain point we looked at it and said, look, so many of these people know uh, who we are and who I am and, and all that. So there, there, it was a pen name. A lot of people knew it was behind the pen name. It wasn't in, anonymous. That's an important distinction because there's a difference between you know a, a burner account with a bunch of digits that just says crazy stuff and a pen name, somebody like Modest Proposal that over years has a defined character and, and is posting certain things. That's a very different thing. Um, but we wanted to start, you know, we really looked at what Patrick O'Shaughnessy has done at OSAM around that kind of build, share, learn, repeat model. We met a bunch of people and we said, you know, there's a really interesting ability here to put out some of our actual research. And um, I think frequently people had like, I'd, I've heard a lot of people like in the DMs, ping somebody and say, you know, is this Mugatu guy an idiot? And people are like, no, he's actually like smart. He does a lot of stuff. He just, you know, we're a low turnover shop. So like, I don't have stuff to talk about day to day. Like, I don't care where a stock's trading day. Um, I'm going to spend weeks and months researching one thing, and then I'm going to make a fairly big bet and wait it out. Um, and so I have things to say periodically, but I also don't like to open my mouth. Uh, you know, despite all the jokes, I don't like to open my mouth unless I feel like I really know what I'm talking about because there's a lot of really smart people and those people may then assume you're an idiot if you're just flapping your gums. But um, we saw a really good opportunity to put out information at scale. And the idea was basically if we can get, you know, if I post an idea and 10 people see it online, then it's kind of unlikely that that I'm going to get good information back or feedback or, or collaboration or this out or whatever, just because the average person on the Internet, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about. That's why they're on the Internet. Try to you know, either figure out what they're talking about or lie to themselves about figuring out what they're talking about. Most people go on Google and just Google what they want the conclusion to be and post that. But if you scale that number number up to 100,000, 500,000, a million, big, big numbers, then all of a sudden you have like pretty robust statistical certainty that you're going to hit 10, 50, 100,000 people that really know what they're talking about. And they're going to want to collaborate if you've demonstrated that you you know, are really genuinely interested in the subject. And then it becomes this, like, we, we think about it as distributed research. And so we're putting out the dating paper. We're going to put out some more papers. We're doing podcasts like this. And we're going to try to kind of talk about here are the big things we're focused on. And it's been great. We've had, you know, 
probably close to a hundred people reach out and, and want to chat about, you know, public companies, private companies, this or whatever, who are, you know, not necessarily about stocks, but just they're, they're, they're interested in the field and they're doing good research. And that's what we love to do is have those conversations. Um, and so that was kind of, that was a big motivating factor, uh, as well as just, you know, the pen name was not actually shielding any, any, you know, it was not anonymous anymore. Um, and it's going very, very well. I mean, the, the, the online dating paper has gotten hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. Um, we've had a lot of people inbound. It's been great. And we're going to continue to put out other stuff that we think is interesting and original and thought provoking. And, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to really, I don't want to pick individual stocks because I don't want at the time when my research comes out versus, uh, um, you know, versus where the stock price is on a given day. I think that's a big trap, but, um, you know, we're going to publish what we think are good two, three, five, 10 year views and, um, and continue to work with the community. And, and it's, and I, and I will say that, you know, some of the people I've met offline have become, off of Twitter, have become some of my absolute best friends in the world. And I've also found out that some of my best friends in the world were accounts, anonymous accounts on Twitter that I didn't know were that. Um, so it's become this amazing hub of all these wonderful people. And yeah, a lot of not wonderful people, but, you know, block early and often. Um, beyond that, it's, you know, I, I think it's the single greatest tool you can have, um, you know, now and going forward. Well, Dan, thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing this paper with us uh, and coming to talk to us on the podcast. Uh, you mentioned releasing some more papers out uh, in the coming months and years. Where do, where should folks follow you if they want to keep track of that research? We'll drop a link to your online dating paper here in this uh, in this uh, podcast description. Where can they find more of your work going forward? Um, there's uh, you know primarily on Twitter. We you know we have a website tyropartners.com. Um, for the Bangladesh stuff, there's anchorless.vc on Twitter. My handle is at Super Mugatu, and then there's at Tyra Partners and uh, at Anchorless BD, and that's all on my profile. So you know, probably the best way to do it is just go to my uh, at Super Mugatu handle, and everything else links out of there. And uh, happy to answer any questions. You know, we're extremely online, so you can reach me on Twitter or go through the websites, and there's a contact email. And you know, um, we're always uh, you know always here to chat. Yeah, well, well thanks so much for coming on, and uh, as you release more things going forward, we'd love to chat with you again soon. Absolutely. Really appreciate it.